Well, that story that I just read to the kids came out of Matthew chapter 2. And Matthew chapter 2 is indeed part of the Christmas story. It's not the part that we like to read, but it is still part of the Christmas story. And I, I want to take a few minutes this morning and, and just read through it quickly one more time. And I'm, I skipped some parts because the kids were, you know, it would not be good for the kids. But this is, this is hard. This is hard stuff. But it's here. It's real. It's part of the scripture. It's part of the story. So Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read 13 all the way through to the end, which is 23. Now when they had departed, they being the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and he departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children of Bethlehem. And in all that region who, uh, and all, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, who was a son of Herod, was reigning over Judea in place of his father. He was afraid to go there being, and being warned in a dream. Again, Joseph being warned in a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken of the prophets might be fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. It's a hard story. And honestly, as I did a little bit of studying this week on it, there are some scholars today that say, well, there's no evidence in any of the historical record that this ever even happened. I mean, Josephus, one of the great Jewish historians, doesn't even report it. And I was reading commentaries on this because I was like, oh, I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know anything about this uh, historically. Um, but one of the commentators that I read said, it's very unlikely that anything would be marked in history about this occurrence of the, the, the time where Herod ordered the destruction of all of the children under the age of two in the village of Nazareth because the village of Nazareth was a, a tiny little burg. And, the, and estimates are that if there was 20 children under the age of two, that would be a lot. So historically, if there was an event that killed 20 children... It wouldn't be a worldwide historical event. It would still be horrible. It would still be something that would be something that you would not want to have happen. But the reality is, it's just a blip in history. But what's sad to me is it was recorded for all of us to remember. 
Think about this. When you think of King Herod, what do you think of when you think about King Herod? What I know of King Herod was that he was so concerned for him, his own kingship and so insecure in who he was as king that he literally had members of his own household, including his wife, killed because he felt they were a threat to him. That's his heritage. That's who he is remembered to be. Someone who is so insane and so, so, uh, so insecure in who they are that, that they literally have people killed to protect themselves. It's an incredibly horrible legacy, but that's who he is in our history, in our remembrance. Contrasting that in this story, who is Joseph? What do you think of? Because he's a pretty, he's a pretty nondescript, not a whole lot of information about him. And he's not in the story of Jesus very long. He's only in these first few chapters of the gospel. And then he just disappears from the scene. There is no historical record of Joseph of Nazareth. You can't go find this is where Joseph is buried. There's not, he's just a person who lived a short life on the earth, had a, had a, some influence, and then that's the end. But what do you think of when you think of Joseph? You think of this man, it says in the Gospel of Luke, or in the first, excuse me, in the Gospel of, uh, of Matthew, who is a righteous man. It said he, being a righteous man, he did not want to put Mary to public disgrace by having her uh, declared publicly as an adulterer. So he simply planned to divorce her quietly. He was going to do the right thing, but he was going to do it in a kind and gentle way. He was going to honor the law, but at the same time, he didn't want to destroy Mary. And so even though he was desperately hurt himself, he wanted to do what was right. That's number one. He's a righteous man. He's known for it. Number two, what is he known for? Well, obviously, he knew how to recognize when God was talking to him. Of course, God did it in a kind of unusual way. Because I can be honest, in my 45 plus years of serving Jesus, I have never had an angel visit me in my dreams or in my waking times. But it's something that did happen in Joseph's life. And so for me, what does it say to me? Number one, it says Joseph knew when God was talking to him. Because God was consistent in the way that God talked to Joseph. Number two, it tells me that I can recognize when God is talking to me because God will find the right way to talk to me in a way that I can understand and receive and I can effectively learn from. So so that's something I learned from Joseph as well. Being righteous, doing the right thing, being kind, being considerate, listening to the voice of God, hearing and being able to discern that it is the voice of God. Something else, though, and it's it's not overtly said, but he was charged 
with the care and nurture of a pregnant woman and an infant. It was his responsibility to make sure that they were kept safe. It was his responsibility to provide for them. It was his responsibility to make sure that no harm came to Jesus in the months of his life when he was dependent on other human beings to keep him safe. Now again, we don't know at what point in history and in Jesus' life Joseph left the stage. Um, Historians will say, well, he was probably there through Jesus' adolescence. We don't know. It's not told to us in Scripture. We do know that Jesus is known as the carpenter's son. Remember that. If you remember when he was teaching in his own village, they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? So one would guess that Joseph was still around into Jesus' adolescence and maybe even into his young adult life. But by the time Jesus was 30 and out in his ministry, we can look in the Gospels and we can see where it says that at one point Jesus is in a house teaching and preaching and it says the people of the house came to Jesus and said, your mother and your brothers are outside and they've come because they want to take you home. It didn't say this to Jesus, but it says in an aside in that section of scripture because they thought he was crazy. But Joseph isn't in that group. So sometime between Jesus's early childhood, probably adolescence, and maybe even his early adulthood, and then until Jesus's ministry 10 or 12 years later, sometime in that window of time, Joseph dies. But he is remembered. He is just a blip. He's just probably 40, 50 years old when he dies. But he's just a blip in history. In the same way that Herod was just a blip in history. If you look at the thousands of years of human history, 50 years, 70 years is nothing. And what are they remembered for? Herod is remembered for being a monster. And Joseph is remembered for being righteous and a person who wanted to do the right thing and a person who was trustworthy and a person who could discern the voice of God. In our culture, this timeline from Christmas to New Year's always seems to be the time when you start seeing things on your Facebook feed or on the television, uh, advertisements about treadmills and keto diet plans and exercise and yoga activities and, 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 and. Why? Because we spend this time going... Next year's going to be better. Next year I'm going to do something different with my life. My wife and I, just this week, for those of you who don't know, her husband did an amazing and glorious thing for Christmas. He gave her a cruise. Not because we're rich, but because I'm able to make payments over the next year. But, (laughs) But the thing is, is the cruise is not until January of 2021. And what Renee said to Bob... Uh, Christmas afternoon or maybe the next day was, 
I'm so thankful that we have a year to prepare. Because my goal is that I want to get myself where I'm able to walk around, to have lost some weight, to feel stronger and, and not have to deal with my knee issues or my hip issues, but to be able to actually walk around on this cruise and enjoy ourselves. And I said, me too. So that's my goal for this coming year is to get myself back into better physical shape than I have been over the last number of years. That was, that was our goal. That is our goal. So this is the time of year when people start doing that in our culture. We start looking at who we are, what, what, what we want to do in the future, how we want to change to be better than we are. But as I was thinking about that and thinking about this sermon... And thinking about literally um, what I was going to preach this week, because honestly, I was being led. I was being led to the to the to the the story of Herod killing the babies, and I was like, I don't want to preach that God. But it came into it for me, because as I had been reflecting for myself, God, I'm 60 years old. The reality is. If I've got another 20 or 30 years, that's all I've got. But the reality is, looking at my physical health, looking at my history, looking at my family's history, probably another 10 to 15 years tops. So what do I want to do with what I have left? And when I'm done, whether it's 10 years from now, or 15 years from now, or 30 years from now, what is it that I want to be remembered for? And so I, I've seriously thought, and actually I, this year for the very first time in my life, uh, as a, as a professional, as a minister of the gospel, I have actually kept a journal, not of my thoughts, but I have literally kept a journal of my accomplishments Throughout the last year, I have a little booklet that I bought. I bought a little leather cover for it. I keep it on my desk and every few weeks I go back through and go, okay, but I catch up because I'm running and I'm getting behind. But literally I try to keep track of on a, on a consistent basis. What happened that week? What are the things that were significant from that week? So that at the end of the year, I can then go back when I have to do an annual report as a pastor and say, well, these are the things that I accomplished in my ministry this year. So as I'm looking at my ministry and thinking, what have I accomplished this year that I want to report on? As I'm thinking about my life, what is it about Bob Sugden that if they were writing my, my obituary or my epitaph, what would it be this right, right now? What would I be known for? Now I would tell you that Bob Sugden from the time I was 16, 17 years of age, I have lived by the Gomer Pyle philosophy of life. You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? Well, if you watch Andy Griffith or Gomer Pyle, you will hear Gomer Pyle say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And that's how I've lived my life as an adult. I will give anybody the benefit of the doubt until they give me reason not to believe them. Then I have a problem with believing and trusting. So I think, at least that's how I've tried to live my life, that I live as a trusting human being. And I would think that people would remember me as a person who is open and trusting and, and, and has integrity, but at the same time not as a person who's foolish. Or is easily guiled. 
I think that's how I've lived my life. Now, only you can tell me, that I don't want you to right now, please, because you're totally messing up. But, but honestly, I think that's how I present myself. Let me, let me give you another thing. It has nothing to do with how I'm living my life, but where I'm coming from. My wife and I moved here in 2003. It was probably 2004, might have been 2006, I don't remember which, but it was an election year. And we were going into, we had gone into the Grange Hall to do our voting, and we were walking out of the Grange Hall, going down that steep, icy uh, parking lot to our car, and there was a reporter standing 150 feet outside of the polling place because he wanted to do an exit poll. And he literally said to me, oh, I don't need to ask you. Why? And I said, what, what are we talking about? And he said, oh, well, there's a bear baiting issue on the ballot. And I know that, I know that it doesn't apply to your life and you don't have an opinion, so I don't need to ask you. You don't know me from Adam. So what about this told you that I'm not part of this community? Because obviously you came to this community thinking this community had an opinion about the bear baiting issue. So what about the way I present myself tells you I don't belong here? So I took off my dockers and my pullover sweater and I bought some Carhartts and flannel plaid shirts. But I still wear my Crocs. And I bought some sweaters because I've been here 16 years and I want my sweaters back. <laughs> but I really and truly had to change the way that I dressed in order to help people to feel like I was part of. And again, it's not that I'm worried about. and Because Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 says, am I trying to please men or am I trying to please God? Because if I'm trying to please men, I'm wasting my time. So I, I don't live my life trying to worry about what other people think about me. But when I'm thinking about what is my heritage, what is my, what am I leaving behind? What will my grandchildren think of when they think of grandpa? I hope that they think of me like Joseph and not like Herod. One of the things that's been on the screen all morning long in front of you James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God means caring for orphans and widows in their time of need and refusing to let the world corrupt you. I'm not familiar with that translation, but I love the way it was presented on the screen. That's the reason I chose it. But James 1, 27, pure and genuine religion. If you, if you go to, uh, let me, let me pull it out of, uh, out of the English Standard Version, because I like the way it says it here. James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is, don't let the world corrupt you, but I like the idea of unstained. Because, you know, if you, if you, if you drip something on your clothing and it has 
that special treatment on the fibers. You can wipe it off and there's no stain. There's no lasting mark from where the, the food or whatever is dropped down. That's how I like to think that I am living my life, that I've, I've allowed myself to be brought into the presence of God. He is my fortress. He is my protector. God is my refuge. The Holy Spirit of God, if you will, is the outer shell protecting me from corruption or the stain of the world. So I live a holy and righteous and pure life before God and the world. But if if all I did, if all I did in my 40 plus years of serving Jesus was live an unstained life, is that enough? James says it's not. It's not just a matter of being righteous and holy and pure. That's what Joseph was. He was righteous. He lived a life that pleased and honored God and tried not to be stained or corrupted by the world. But he did more than that. He took care of those who couldn't care for themselves. Now, I thought about it because on my Facebook feed, it shows me memories. And this week, from five years ago, there was a posting that I had made about food that was being made available at the community center. And I went, five years ago? And it really wasn't the early days of the food ministry. It was a year or two into the food. So I was like, we've been doing this six years? It doesn't seem like it. Wow. But the reality is, do I want to be known as the guy that fed the people of our community? Yes, I do, but no, I don't. Because one of the things I'm very aware of right now, one of the things I'm very aware of right now, because of all the things going on in my world, I have been aware of the last year of the fact that I'm not going to be here for the rest of my life. Or at least I'm not going to be here for the rest of time, let's put it that way. I might be here the rest of my life, but I'm not going to be here for the next 20, 40, 50, 60 years. At some point, Bob Sugden is either going to retire from the ministry or God's going to move him or he's going to die. And what will happen to the food ministry that happens at our church and at the community center weekly? Right now, if I were to be pulled out, there would be a problem in its continuing. And so God has made me very aware that it is my job to lead these ministries, not to do these ministries. He called me here to pastor community and to help other disciples of Christ learn how to be effective, active disciples of Christ. Not for me to be the be all and do all for this community. Because if I try to do it in my own strength, the end result is I make a name for myself. I don't make a name for Jesus. And I'm not helping anybody else to become a better Christian. So when I reflect on, have I done a good job for God? My, my heart is kind of divided. I think I've done a good job for God. 
I think I've worked hard, and I think I've been faithful, and I think I've been honorable, and I think I've been righteous, and I think I've presented myself in a, in a holy way to this community, and I think I've shown compassion to the people that need compassion, and I think I've shown love to those that need love, and I think I've reached out and ministered to those who had a need who couldn't do for themselves. So yes, am I meeting the standard of James chapter 1 verse 27? I think so. But I'm supposed to be leading a flock of other Christians into being better Christ followers, and I'm not so sure that I'm doing the best job there that I can. And that's going to be a period of reflection for me over the coming months. What if anything? I mean, it's amazing. I got a gift from the district superintendent that he sent out to all the pastors. It wasn't just me. But he sent this book out called Learning to Lead Like Jesus. I got so many stinking leadership books in my office. I've read all these books. And quite honestly, if I take the the spiritual gift inventory, the top one is leading. And number two, which is actually equal with one, is discerning of spirits. So my spiritual gifting is leading. And I have all these leadership classes that I've taken. I've had all these books that are given to me. But God gives me this one book through my pastor for Christmas this year, and I, for whatever reason, I pulled a Marlene. I opened up the book and looked at the back pages. I hate when people do that. But I did. And there was an essay that wasn't written by the author of the book, but he said at the beginning of this little section, if nobody reads anything else but this section, you've been, you found the value in the book. And I was like, Okay, I'll read it. And it was like 15, 20 pages long. It took me you know, about half an hour to read, 20 minutes to read. And I read it and I went, oh my word. It was the most challenging thing I've read in days, in months, in years. About being a minister of the gospel, about being an effective leader, about being a pastor. And I was like, thank you God for bringing this to me. It's something that was written back in the, in the, in the early night, I mean the late 1900s or the early uh, 2000s, but it is something that this author has shared with any class that he's ever taught on leadership. And he said, and I wanted to make sure that my readers had a copy of this so that they would always have access to it. It is powerful, which just has made me want to read the rest of the book. So he, he accomplished his mission. But the reality for me is this, my New Year's resolution, which I hate doing, is to seek the face of God in how God would have me lead the flock of God. Because as I have reflected this week over Herod and over Joseph, I do not want to be known for anything negative. I want to be known for positive. I want people to look at me and they think about Jesus. I want people to look at my life when it's all said and done. And I want them to think that man served the Lord. That man ministered in the name of Jesus. That man showed the love of Christ. That man was living a holy and righteous and pure life before God in the world. That's what I want. But even more than that, I want to be known as the pastor who shepherded, shepherded his people so that they too can look back at the end of their life and say, I've lived well. I've honored God. I've helped widows and orphans in their time of need. I have not allowed the world to corrupt me. And I can stand with confidence before my maker at the time that I'm called home 
and know with confidence that I will hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what I want. I want to be a pastor who shepherds well. That's what I want to be known as. So pray for me. And I will continue to pray for you. And may God help each one of us to achieve the goals that he sets before us in this coming year. Let's pray.